Welcome, everybody. Good morning. We're doing Hi. something different. Uh, as you can see, I'm Todd, and this is my daughter, Brooke. We're related. Hi, Brooke. And we're going to be team teaching together. So we're going to get into first First team. time ever. First well, Peter. second time. We taught at the beach already we did? today. Oh, yeah, yeah, this morning. This morning. But we've never done this before. So this is going to be great. We talk over each other and we correct each other. All sorts of things are going to happen I today. I did do that last service. It was in love, though, Dad. Yeah, I know. I yeah. know. I said it wrong. So, and I'll follow the cues. I'll get it right this time. But you did cut me off, too. So I did. Yeah, yeah. We're good. Yeah. We're good. If you go in too long on a point, then I just move on. <laughs> so it's going to be good. We're going to read the passage together. But before I do that, I, I can't keep a secret. So my wife often won't tell me something because she knows that if she tells me, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget that I'm not supposed to say something. So I'm, I'm often left out of like important details but in this particular case, I'm really, really excited that the river is moving in uh, a new direction with our office space. And I'm really excited about this. So we're getting out of Lamita Boulevard and Torrance, you know, the Torrance area, and we're moving closer to the Riviera, Lord willing, I should say. We're in the middle of lease negotiations and things are looking really good. It's going to be an open space. It's not an office. It's a place to meet, to gather. So I'm really excited about it. Our staff's excited about it. So pray for us. We are downsizing. We are throwing things away. We are going through old books, material, files. We're, we're just skimming down. We're just slimming down. And we're going to have a really cool, fun, exciting space. So I just wanted to let you know, and you're going to hear more about that. But I, I just wanted to be the first to tell you. Because... It doesn't have anything to do with our sermon today, no, but he just nothing. wanted to, yeah. Just wanted to get, so yeah. where's Robert? Robert Franklin has been working Robert in our youth Franklin. ministry. You've Robert just been a, doing a great job, and we love you. You've been part of our staff, and we're just, we're really amazingly uh, uh, thankful that you, you chose to spend some time with us as a River Church, as a pastoral staff, and you, you've, been, you've been awesome. So will you read the scriptures for us? So this is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 12. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Through, Though your fire is far more precious than mere gold, so when your faith remains strong, 
through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious and inexpressible, inexpressible joy. The joy for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told that their message was not for them, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Well, thank you, Robert. Yes, what a, what, this is like a cornucopia of joy and exciting stuff. I just came up with that word. And I think it, 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 it's, it's true. It's like it's just bubbling up of joy and excitement, and we're born again to a living hope. It's very hopeful, isn't it? You, you hear that. You hear a sense of hope. We're born again to something new, and, and, and there's great joy in that. Even the angels, I love that. The very last verse, we didn't talk about this last time, but the very last, the idea is that their necks are stretched out. Look, they're peering from the heavens down because something so amazing is happening. I mean, do you get that picture? Do you see that in your mind? That the heavens, that they're kind of peering down, all the angels, and maybe they're sitting on their, 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 their hands or against their chin, peering down, looking at the, the, what's developing here on earth in this passage. And in the midst of all of that, there is this teaching about suffering. And so what we want to do this morning together is to walk you through this passage. And it's a passage of great hope. It's called living hope. And how to live in that living hope, even in the context of very, very difficult times. And that's Peter's point. So let's dive in. So as, as Taylor did a phenomenal job last week of introducing us to the recipients of this great letter, the aliens dispersed abroad, these what we would call uh, resident aliens. So these are resident aliens leave, living dispersely all over Asia Minor. This is about 67 AD. Um, Nero has concluded his first kind of severe persecution of Christians. And so they're, the Christians have been attacked. And these Christians are trying to learn how to live in the, in the world in which they have been placed as aliens. They're not tourists. And they're not like, these are aliens as in the sense that they have no, they have no place or no place to belong. N.T. Wright's um, commentary, I think, is accurate when he calls it, these are individual Christians that have a dual citizenship. And it's true. We live in this sense of... Um, uh, suspension between two places, and we have a citizenship in heaven, which we hold on to, that Peter is referring to, but we also live very, very present in the real world right now, and, and, and we're different, and we're unique, and yet we have a role to play, 
And, and crazy enough, I was thinking about this last night as I went to bed, and we were watching this, this movie, and we only got like 10 minutes into it, and we're like, we're done. But it was, uh, and I had read the book already, it was, it was the book Alive, it was about the, the rugby players from, Euro, from Uruguay, or I think that's from where they were, and they were flying through the Indies for a rugby match, and the plane crashed, and then they had to eat each other. And it's just horrible. And I thought, oh dear, my dream is definitely about eating people. I know it is. And it wasn't. It was, was really good. It was actually about being in a Christian camp. And I was at this Christian camp, and all the popular high school friends that I knew in my high school were also there that are not believers. And so I was caught between being with my Christian friends at this Christian camp and wanting to get over to my friends from high school. It's the craziest thing. And they were over by a lake, and so I was trying to get there the whole time in my dream. I was in one place, and I was moving toward another place. And that's, I think, what Peter's talking about. We live with a real tension between living present in the real world with with people that may not have a faith that we have, and yet we also have an identity, as as Taylor mentioned last week, a new identity that, that, that directs kind of our behavior and our lifestyle. That's where we're going. And we're born into this living hope. And the world needs this hope. So I think, Brooke, this would be a great place for you to kind of dive in to the core teaching of this passage and, and walk us through kind of where really what Peter is, is trying to get us to think about yeah. in a new way. Well, I think what you hit on to start with is so critical. Um, the fact that Peter, firstly, is trying to remind these churches, these Christians, about their real true identity about their salvation, about what their hope lies and where their hope is. And so he's, he's talking to them about their identity. He's reminding them of their identity. But when I read a text, I'm really compelled by the question, why? Like, why is Peter reminding them of their identity? What's happening in their world, in their life? Um, and what I see in First Peter and what we know of these churches is that they were in persecution. They were, be, they were suffering deeply. They were all suffering. And so I look at this, at this text, at this book, and I ask the question, of all the things that Peter could have said to a group of suffering Christians, what does he say? Of all the things he could have, like, think about this. I feel like recently I have found myself in the presence of a lot of friends who are suffering. I've just found myself like on the couch or on the phone or like just in the presence of suffering in my life, in my friendships. And I, I will tell you, I don't know what to do. I mean, what do you do with someone who's suffering? I feel like there's only really two appropriate responses. One is to be silent and just listen and be present with, right? That's better than not showing it up, up at all. Just sitting with, just making your presence known. I'm with you. When you're sitting with someone who's suffering, the last thing that they want to hear in true deep suffering is like, well, you know God is good, right? 
Like that just doesn't land. That's, that doesn't speak to your heart when you just hear someone speak this truism or a bumper sticker, right? It's like, th- so I've been thinking about what do, what do my friends, what has been, has been encouraging in moments of suffering when I am sitting on the couch with someone who's in pain? And I'll tell you, the only thing that I think really lands, really is deeply encouraging is true lived experience and truth. It's like, it's, I say God, you know, I could say God is with you always. Or I could say, you know, I know you're suffering. I know God is with us, but let me just tell you about how he's been with me. In my one, two, three miscarriages, he has been so present for me. Can I tell you how he's been present for me? That's all I have to share is my true, it's the, the truth lived out in my life, right? And so when I think about this book and what Peter is saying and why he's saying it, I see Peter spilling out of his guts this lived truth. That's what it is. It's like Peter is like, if there is one thing that I can say to all of you that I know would encourage you in suffering, one thing, I have one letter to write, and the letter was delivered, right, by hand, so it could have taken a long time to get there, and then there's all these, this list of all these places in verse one, the letter is actually being carried from this place to this place to this place, so it has to be applicable to everybody, so it has to be a truth that can stand the test of time, and all these different circumstances, what is the one thing that Peter is like, if I could give you one piece of encouragement because I love you so deeply that I know will encourage your soul and propel you forward, what is that one thing that I could say? Well, you need to tell us. And I, Brooke, <laughs> Brooke well, put I'm... in the notes here. She didn't like my outline, so she wrote the outline. And oh, in the outline, it yeah, says Todd. I was just about to say the most important thing. I'm supposed to say, and in a nutshell, <laughs> what, what is he saying? That's not when you're supposed to say it. (laughs) It says that. So what is it? What's the thing of all the things that Peter could say, what does he want them to know? He wants them to know that their faith is being tested. And it's so valuable and important that their faith is tested because it's the means by which they receive salvation. He's saying, of all the things I could tell you to deeply encourage you, don't just weather this storm. Don't just hang on and grit your teeth and white knuckle. He's saying, can you actually lean in to this suffering? Lean in because here's what's going to happen. If you do, you will not have the kind of faith that's like wishy-washy. I kind of believe in God. He's kind of with me. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this is really all for me. I'm not sure if I'm really all in or not. He goes, If you lean in, in the moments of suffering, what's going to happen is your faith will be tested like fire and refined, and it will be strong, and it will withstand anything. It will be a solid foundation that, that, that locks you into, that attaches you to the person and work of Jesus Christ who will propel you forward 
into hope, into living hope in all circumstances. He's saying it's worth it to really anchor yourself in, in this testing of your faith. That's what it's about. That's why it's worth it. Right? Well, what it did is. I miss? And I think, I think when you wrote this in your notes, this trial is testing the faith. I didn't say it right. That is saving your soul. That's what I think. I, I never understood that. When I read this passage about going through a test or a trial, and it's like gold under fire, it's, it's hard for us to relate to that unless we know the reason why. Isn't that true? If you know why it's happening, you have a far better chance of making it through it. And the why is exactly what you pointed out. I've never seen that before. Remarkable. It's just, it's so true. It's because your faith is being tested and your faith is what saves your soul. And if your faith never gets tested, then you'll never know for sure whether that faith can save you. Well, and it's like, you know, you notice some people enter into trial and, and suffering and it pushes them away from the Lord and some people and they're like I don't know and then other people you know it pushes them into the arms of Jesus because they realize that's there's nowhere else to go and then they have this this faith out of that suffering that is strong that is refined that is tested by fire it has to it has to go through that our faith has to go through that because our faith is the only thing we have that secures us to an eternal future your soul is dependent on the strength of your faith. And that faith is, has to go through that, that, that refining process. And what it does in that, in, and I find this true with fire. Fire, when, when gold goes through fire, is it destroyed? It's not destroyed, it's purified. But if you go through the fire and your, your, your faith is in the wrong thing, what happens to it? It, it's burned. It gets destroyed. It's, just, it's decimated. So the way you look at it is if you put your confidence in your circumstances, i got to have good, good circumstances in this life, and your focus is on your circumstances, when you go through the fire, what happens? Your life is decimated. But if your confidence in your faith is in something like pure gold, your confidence is in a faith that what we're talking about here is a living hope that comes from the resurrection of Christ, not from you. And that you're going to be able to endure the trial because you know the trial is actually producing pure gold in your life. It's producing a faith that's securing your eternal salvation. And I love that. I think that's, I think that's the heart of what Peter's saying. Yeah. So how do we get that? Well, I think we get that um, through what I would call a reckoning. There's a time and a place in all of our lives where, and we're kind of going out of order. We talked about the middle section. It's like eating, when you get to an artichoke, what do you want to eat first? The heart of the artichoke is all the meat, right? And I think what Peter's doing is there's the meat in it. That's something that we need. We want that. We want to understand that. And now we're kind of eating around that and all the leaves that have some really good meat on it as well. And here's what Peter's doing is he begins with this idea that, God's mercy has allowed us to be born again to a living hope. 
So he's talking about this. And then three times later, he'll talk about salvation. So he's talking about this new life or born again. It's, it's this new, it's the born again literally means to be regenerated. It comes from John chapter three. Peter's referring back to Jesus, his, his mentor, his Lord. Peter was a disciple of Jesus's. And in that, he heard of the time in which Nicodemus in the evening, a ruler of, over Judaism, one of the rulers, came, a very religious man, very prominent individual, came to Jesus at night and wanted to have a conversation and identified him as a rabbi, as a teacher. And Jesus immediately jumps in and says, Nicodemus, I know what you need. You don't need to be topped off as if you've done a really good job up to this point and your religion has got you really, really close to the finish line. You need to be born again. Anakaneo. It means literally to be emptied of everything and to start all over again and receive what I have to offer you. And the wind blows where it may. It's through the power of the Spirit. Titus 3, 5, and 6. We are not saved by works, but by grace through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It's a day of reckoning, a moment. And what Peter is referring to is that we will never get to that place unless we have this day of reckoning where we know that we are truly born again, that we have been given something new in us. And what's that new? What's changed in us? And I'll tell you what's changed. It's our nature. We now have a whole new orientation. The old nature has, has, has a, a propensity for desire of things of the world. And because we're such hedonists as individuals, we seek pleasure, we often are destroyed by our own desires. When we have a new nature, Titus 3, 5, and 6, we are regenerated and given. That old nature dies within us, and we're given a new nature with a whole new inclination, a whole new set of desires that come from God. Something changes in you, and now you have the ability to be refocused so you begin to see the way God sees things. That's really good. Do you have anything else to say about that? I don't think so. I think you have a quote. Do you have a quote do about we, Dallas Willard? Do we have time? Yeah, I think it was a good one. I love Dallas Willard, and you do too. And uh, I've read this, this book. Our, this is our favorite book. My dad and I have the same book. How I nerdy, didn't know that. Favorite book. How nerdy I did not is that? know that. It's on Psalm 23, and it's Life Without Lack, and it's just brilliantly written, and uh, it's so dense. I just have to keep rereading because I, I can't get it all and keep hang on to it all. There's so many things. But in it, I go, keep going back to page one. And in page one, he's talking about um, the difference between really believing and living. Believing what we, what we believe and living what we believe. And so he essentially what he says is that one of our greatest needs today is for people to really see and really believe the things that they already profess to see and believe. So we profess certain things. We believe in God. We believe in Christ. We believe in new life. We believe all these things. But do we really see them and do we really believe them? And what he says is when we truly believe what we profess, we are set to act as if it were true. It begins to change things. And that's what it means. I think that's the living hope. That's why it's a living hope. And that living hope now enables us to be completely reoriented to a whole new set of desires, a whole new way of seeing things. 
so that we can see the reality around us and see why it is that we suffer and what its purpose is in our lives. Yeah, I love that idea of, you know, there's hope and then there's living hope. And what's the difference between the two? How could hope be living? And is it, is it the fact that hope is living or is it that the fact that we are living out our hope or both? I mean, it's a really interesting thought to consider, but <clears throat> I think the other thing that contributes to this that we see kind of woven throughout this passage is, is this idea of joy. And so then you, you go back and you ask, okay, so this is a passage about salvation and our, our future hope and, and what we are um, being born again into that living hope. And then we have this, con and, and our suffering, and we have this concept of joy. And I have always been taught, you know, and heard as a Christian growing up in a Christian church, um, you know, we rejoice in our suffering because it produces a strong faith. And I'm like, okay, that's harder to do than it is to say, right? To actually be in, in a hard situation or in suffering and say, I'm going to rejoice in the fact that I have this trial. Like, who does that, actually? Who does that? And I'm looking at, you know, the New Testament, and I'm like, well, Paul does that, but Paul's kind of untouchable, right? I mean, he's not untouchable, but you know what I mean? Like, who really shows what is this like? And then I start digging into this, this text in 1 Peter, and I see the idea of where our joy is rooted, like where it comes from, is so far beyond just, having joy in the fact that we're suffering because it produces a strong faith. Where is the joy coming from? In this passage, where I see Peter drawing it out of, look at verse 6 with me. The first time he says it, in, I, can we put it up there? In this, you rejoice. Well, what is this? If you back up to verse 5, you see that Peter's talking about a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We are rejoicing in what is to come. We're rejoicing in this future hope. Peter is all about glorification and what is our future and where are we going and how do we attune our lives to what's coming. So he's got this future perspective, right? Joy comes from thinking about that. But then joy is mentioned again, rejoice. It's not even just joy. It's this word rejoice. It's like, is it? Is it a command? Is it an invitation? James could probably tell you because he's looking at his Greek Bible right there. Is it, James? Is it an invitation? Is it a command? How's this word written? This is, I'm putting him on the spot. It's, a com it's an imperative. Rejoice. Okay, so we got this first one that's connected to the future, and then we get this second invita invitation, command, imperative to rejoice in verse 8. And you know what I see surrounding this one? He says this, though you have not seen him, who, who's him? Jesus. You love him. All the babies are agreeing with me. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. And here's what I see in this rejoice. 
when I look at this passage as a whole and I zoom out, because I love big picture thinking, right? What is Paul, Peter, this is not even Paul, what is Peter doing here? He, it, what it feels like is he is surrounding us with these reasons to rejoice. There are these three key terms in this passage. You know what they are? Hope, faith, and love. Have you heard those grouped together before in scripture? It makes me think of what? 1 Corinthians 13, right? But these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And Peter is referencing in this passage, faith, hope, and love with this command, this imperative to rejoice. And so I'm looking at it going, what Peter is doing is he's surrounding us with the reason. Am I even on? Should I not use this? He's surrounding us with the reasons to rejoice. He, you know what he's doing? He's saying hope is a future thing, right? We rejoice in what is to come. Faith is a present thing. You have your faith now. It's the Lord walking with you through your trials in this very moment. And love, though you have not seen him, you love him who? Jesus. Why? Because of what he's done for us. Because of what he has already sacrificed in the past, right? So I, I feel, like the sense that I feel when I read this passage is like, there is reason to rejoice in what he has done, in what he is doing now, and in what he will do. The reasons to rejoice are literally surrounding us, are blanketing us. And um, when I, last semester at, um, at um, Biola, it was my first semester teaching, and we uh, teach through the spiritual disciplines to the, all the freshman students. And one of the spiritual disciplines around the time of Thanksgiving, it was like timed with Thanksgiving, comes teaching this spiritual discipline of giving thanks. And I'm like, I don't need much prep for this. I know what it means to give thanks to God. Like, it's so important. I believe in it. And I start, it was the biggest surprise for me. At like so impactful and rich because I start reading the, the book that we give our students. This is the definition that, um, of, of, Thanksgiving as a spiritual practice that was written by um, this woman who has um, written the book for the students, but a press professor Biola as well. She says this, Thanksgiving is defined as this, the humble and responsible posture of the heart that expresses gratitude regardless of circumstances because it simply focuses on who God is and what he does. It starts with internal recognition of our core needs and the acknowledgement of an all-knowing God and his loving kindness, his hesed. It is a way of thinking and a way of living. And as I was sitting in this passage and feeling like surrounded by this invitation to rejoice, I kept coming back to this definition and this idea of giving thanks. It's like the same, the same invitation, the same command, a posturing of our heart to recognize where he is in our past and our present and our future and, and allowing him to shape us through our practice. And, and as I'm teaching this to the students, I had, I think like 16 slides of the lists of the reasons why we practice giving thanks to the Lord. Why, what does it do in us? 
And I'm sitting there reading through it thinking, this is, this is for us. And I think the same is true of rejoicing. And so I don't say, um, I don't say like rejoice in your suffering nonchalantly. Like I don't say it without a pulse on what's happening in this room and the suffering that, that we are as a community going through. I say it as Peter said it, who was charged by Jesus to take care of the flock. Like this was Peter's heart is to take care of people, to take care of the flock of Jesus. And how Peter says it is this rejoicing, this awareness of where he has been, what God has done in the past and in the present and in the future, this is going to be for you. This is going to ignite a flame in your heart, a living hope that will not blow out. It's a secret. It will change you. It will transform you because he has provided so much, not just what, what you have now, but what you have coming, this, et- this eternal inheritance. I'm going on and on. I'll let you talk now. No, no, that's good. That's really good. I was thinking when you pointed out the fact that this is something that we are to do. It's a rejoice. It's an imperative. Um, I was thinking uh, I started a new Bible plan this year, and I want to get through the whole Bible in a year. I've done it many, many times, and I've failed every single time. And I get through February, March, whatever, and it's like, oh, I'm so far behind now. I mean, they're in lamentations, and I'm still in Exodus. It's not going to work. But this time, I'm motivated by something different, and I'll tell you why. Um, It comes back to this idea that it's an imperative, but I understand the reality of the value of it in my life. I was listening to a message, and the individual pointed out the fact that people that read their Bible more than four times a, a week have better mental capacity. It improves their mental awareness and improves mental health. You read the Bible more than four times a week, it will improve your mental health. And I was so focused on that, thinking, I need that. I need a positive outlook. I need this. And it's something I want. And it's changing my motivation and recognizing that now thankfulness, when it comes to this, is a responsibility of the Christian. Joy, thankfulness and joy, because we are born again with a living hope, even in the context of trials. And then Peter ends with this very interesting way. Why does Peter end talking about the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come? Why does he draw us all the way back to the prophets? And I thought about this. Why does he end with this? These are the ones that were searching out carefully, making inquiries, seeking to know what person, time, the spirit, the kairos moment. Remember kairos? Kairos, not chronos, which is time, like just one time after another, but kairos, a moment, an opportune moment. Why were they seeking that out and searching for that, that moment when the spirit of Christ within was indicating that he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow? It was revealed to them. And then they turned around and then they preached the gospel through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven as the angels are peering down on the whole scene. Why, why are the prophets? Because we are to become like prophets. 
We are modern day prophets to do three things, all three things they did. They sought out the truth. They suffered. Prophets suffered. But they also shared the gospel, the good news. And we are prophets in a modern day world. And we are to do the same three things. Seek out the truth. Seek out this deeper truth of the reality of your identity, of who you are in Christ. Recognize that suffering is a part of the Christian life. It's part of the fabric of human reality. And third, share that good news. Not bad news. We can all share bad news, right? Every single one of us, if I asked you, tell me one bad thing, you would know immediately what's the one bad thing you wanted to tell me that's going on right now, either in your life or in the world or somebody else or about somebody else, right? See, we, but we need to be the bearers of good news. In fact, we are the only people on the face of the earth that have the best news. It is us. And so we go from this place as those modern-day prophets into the world and share that. And the prophets interacted in a real world. So there you yeah, go. I was just going to say, um, I, I think that idea of sharing kind of freaks a lot of us out. We're like, okay, I'm not a prophet. I mean, I don't know how you're feeling, but I hear that and I go, well, maybe you're a prophet, but I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet. And and the idea of sharing feels scary. It feels like I need to be in a different place if I'm going to be the one sharing. I got to be better. I got to be something. I don't know. And I feel like you do a really good job, Dad, of, um, of not looking for that idea, you know, just of being topped off, but really just living your life as a sharing, as a, um, just a demonstration of this is who I am as a new creation in Christ. And you have these relationships. I don't know if you, you know what my dad does with his time besides, um, sit in his office and read all these books and have all these weird dreams. But, um, He's meeting with these people and spending time with people, like, I would say all, all of our life, like, half of your time is spent with churched people, and the other half is with not churched people. And so there's this openness with the world that is not like you're going out and, and saying, well, let me tell you about Jesus and how he died for your sin. You're just, you have this open life. So I want, would you just share, like, how do you engage with people because there's a lot of people in your life who would recognize you one of one of my very best friends um doesn't know the lord and doesn't really want to know the lord and yet she and her dad both call my dad their pastor so how does that happen talk us through that well i don't i honestly don't know and the worship team can come up this isn't a deflection but we are going to close and so we're going to have communion and all of that and and I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I feel like we raised you kids in a home where we always went to church, a Christian church, as you pointed out, as opposed to a non-Christian church. But um, we grew up in this church environment, and, and you know your mom and I went into ministry, and, and we always wanted to expose you to the truth and to faith in this Christian community. But we have always had the sense that our, our feet are in two places, we're firmly established in both the community of faith and also in our communities, 
in the world, in our, in our friendships. And I don't know what it is. I don't know when this happened, but I just have a deep love and respect for people and for their, their genuineness and their, their, um, the, what they love to aspire to. And it's not like a project. It's a friendship. And I feel like I, I don't know why. I don't know how that happens, but I just find me, myself being very comfortable in non-Christian settings where um, I can just meet myself. And I think one of the things that allows me to do that is I am who I am. And so whether I was on the rugby, it's a secured identity. So whether I was on the rugby team or whether it was my fraternity or whether it was in the real estate world, um, all those places, swimming team, I just seem to be very comfortable in those places. And I... I because those are places where I truly, really love and respect people for who they are. And they're, they're unique and they have value. I love to learn. So I love to learn about people and learn about their uniqueness and, and, and engage those things and find commonality. And it, out of that came a real sense of comfortableness, if that's a word, uh, just connecting with people. So, And how does that lead to just moments of you opening up your life and your heart and your, I mean, talk about how that happens because I think some of us have an idea in our mind that sharing means sitting down and walking through four steps, but it's so, it's not that. I mean, it can be that, but it's so much more than that. And so I want to hear like when a conversation opens up, like how do you engage with that in light of this truth that you are born again, that this is your living hope, that, that your life, that your suffering is your faith being strengthened and tested so that it leads to this moment of, of salvation, of, of glory with him. What, how do you engage with all of that in the context of your real life? And I know this is a big question, but with people and just what, what would be one thing that you would give your church to, to just take away, to sit with, to chew on? Well, gosh, uh, ask questions. Be interested in, genuinely interested in other people. And when you're genuinely is interested in the other person, there's going to be a connection. And you can win over people by being genuinely interested if you're genuinely interested. You know, you're not fakely interested. You're just... You're genuinely interested in knowing about people and about their life. And you're asking them questions. And, and then you're, you're posing questions. You're asking them questions about their life that seem to get to that point. The other side of it is I just get teased a lot. So I'm the guy on the swim team that only works one hour. because, And I remind them, no, I work two hours because there's two services, not one. Because they simply say, well, you, just pre you have one hour that you preach and you don't do anything else the rest of the time. That's kind of the joke with me. And I just lean into that. And I get called the pastor of disaster because my golf ball typically goes into the Arroyo, which is the out-of-bounds area. And so I get teased a lot for things and stupid things I say or do. And it's just me being me. And then uh, I think what they're doing is they're poking fun at me, but they're also kind of circling the reality that there's something different about me. So 
I think that's, just be yourself and ask a lot of questions and genuinely be interested in people and build those great relationships. And I know some, you're doing that. I know many of you in your environments and in the organizations and the groups that you're involved in and the people that you interact, you know this stuff. You're doing it. You're just bringing that living hope. Yeah, I, I would just close with um, just, you know, one other word about how we just invite people into our lives as we live this out, as we share, as you do life with people and you're opening up your suffering. And this is where my hope is. And this is where I'm seeing encouragement. And this is hard to do. And I'm trying to figure this out. And as we invite people in and do that together, um, it just, it builds a trust and um, transparency um, and vulnerability lead to just depth of relationship and intimacy. And, um, and so I see that in your relationships and, and you've been just a great model of that dad of just being the same person everywhere. Um, and kind of allowing guys on your swim team who don't know the Lord to see your suffering and where your hope is and allowing the people in this room who are part of this church to see your suffering. And, um, you know, I've, I've have vivid pictures of you teaching and being like, this is where I'm at right now, or reading a journal entry that's like really vulnerable and sharing with this group of people, like, I feel like a fraud or whatever. Or I feel like discouraged in my ministry. And, um, and I think that, you know, what Peter is inviting these churches into is a living hope with each other as they seek and set their eyes on on future hope, on future, on salvation. So um, let's pray uh, together. Lord, we thank you so much for just the words of Peter, uh, someone who caring for a flock, your flock, Lord, with loving words, with tenderness and kindness and joy, even in the middle of suffering and persecution, having something to say that he has lived out and believed believes with all of his mind and heart to be true, um, that he would stand on it. He's betting everything on this truth, that our faith is being tested so that we might have salvation because of what you have done, Lord. And um, so now I just, I just want to invite us to take a moment to just um, think about where we are each of us individually, Lord. And um, maybe there's a word for us around joy and where it can be found and that it is for us in the midst of our suffering. Maybe there's a word for us about community and our invitation to do it alongside each other, Lord. Maybe there's a word for us about um, being born again being a new creation, Lord, not an old one that got topped off with a little Christian encouragement, a little dose of God, but being completely emptied out and refilled by you, Lord, a new creation saved by grace. I pray that we would just take a moment to stop and ask, where are we? What's bubbling up to the surface in our heart? What do you, what did you want to reveal to us today, Lord? And where are you?
Lord, we are encouraged by your word. We are encouraged by our community, this body of believers. I am encouraged by all of the new life in this room, all of these beautiful babies. We thank you. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for growing us in strength and a firm foundation of faith. We love you so much. We pray all this in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand whenever you're ready. You can take the elements in your own time with the Lord as we worship. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb in desperation. In desperation I turned to heaven, I spoke your name into the night and through the darkness, then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the Jesus Christ, my living Lord. Who could imagine so great a mercy? Who could imagine so great a mercy? What I could fathom, such boundless grace, the God of ages. Step down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross, the cross has spoken, I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. Salvation in your name, Jesus Christ. Let's sing that again. My living hope, hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Then came the morning.
came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe out of the silence. The roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on us. Sing this again. Give us faith this morning. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe out of the silence. The Salvation in your name, Jesus Christ. One more time. My living hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Oh God, you are my living hope. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that that is the truth that we can stand on. You are our living hope. You are with us through every circumstance. There is no valley that is too low for you, no darkness that you can't shine your brilliant light on. So Lord, lead us in that truth. And may we not just hear words that fall to the ground, but may they root deeply into our hearts. You are our living hope. You took our sin, you took our shame. You died and you rose again. So we honor you for that, Jesus. We honor you in our lives and our hearts. And may we find the joy in it, God. We love you, we worship you. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, have a great day, you guys. Stay warm. We're going to turn the heater on a little early next week so we're not as cold most of the morning. Bless you guys.